As we begin this series, for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at things that we go hard after in order to find fulfillment in our lives, all of which, other than God's purpose for us, end up being unfulfilling and not delivering what they advertise. So we're going to talk about the things that we go after, how it is that they fail to satisfy, and then focus our attention on what it is that God tells us we need to direct our energies toward in order to fulfill the purpose that he's, he's given us. Now, I want to issue this warning at the beginning of this series. This series is, by design, uh, going to be very, should be very convicting for me and probably for you as well because it is going to force us to examine what it is we live for as evidenced in what we do in the hours that God gives us throughout a given week, as evidenced in how we use the material blessings that God has given to us to use for his purposes, as evidenced in how we use the gifts that God has endowed us with in order to use for his purpose. And very often, the truth of the matter is, those are misappropriated by me and by you. So I'm warning you that this is convicting. It's designed to be that way. Now, why, why is it necessary for us to have series that really hone in on ways in which we fail to use what God has given for the purposes for which he has given them? Why, why is it necessary for us to do that? Well, it's because the Bible teaches that God is in the business of transforming people, changing people. There's something wrong with people, us. And those people need to be changed, transformed into what they were originally designed to be. Change is often painful. True? And for me and for you then to look in the mirror, and as a matter of fact, the, the Bible compares itself to a mirror into which we are to look. And it chides those of us who will look into the mirror of the Word of God, James 1, and not make changes as a result of having seen ourselves in the mirror of the Word of God. It tells us then to be doers of the Word and not hearers only because... Somebody who just hears it and doesn't do it is like, and then it gives that illustration. Someone looks in the mirror, they see changes that need to be made, but they go to work without brushing their teeth, combing their hair, all that stuff. They don't change. And so God says, your life in me is to be a continual process of change, which means there are going to be times of pain for each of us as we behold ourselves in the mirror of the Word of God. I include myself in all of that. So I give you that warning. Further, this idea that God's process, God's, God's work in our lives is a work of, of change and continual change is something that we need to be reminded of from time to time. Here's why. What happens with many followers of Jesus is we get to a certain point in our walk with him and then we stop changing. This is, a very, this is a very common thing that happens with Christian people. They come to, they come to Christ. They're, they're newly minted as a new believer in Him. They've come to Him as Savior. They want to learn of Him. They want to follow Him. They're excited about that. They come to functions that are provided by the church in order for them to, to learn and grow in that. 
And they get rid of some obvious and big things that are hard for them, painful for them, causing difficulty in their lives, and people see a difference. And it makes a difference. And so there's change that takes place. And that'll go for a year, might go for two years, maybe three years. But very often what happens is, after that one, two, three year, maybe five year period, people start to slow down. And they stop seeing areas of their life that need to be conformed to the image of Christ. Friends, to stop changing is to stop, hear this, to stop changing is to stop the process of becoming like Jesus. And God's purpose for us is that we mirror him back to him, that we look like Jesus in the way that we think, in the way we talk, and in the way we act. So every last one of us is to be involved in a lifelong process of change. And therefore, we should each welcome looking into Scripture, seeing where it is we fall short, and then saying, Lord, by your grace, I'm going to conform to the image of Jesus in this area of my life. So be forewarned, but understand that it should be part of the normal process of change in the Christian life. So with that, if you'll take a look at the very first page of your notes... I've got a description of our class, The Pursuit of Happiness. It's designed to be a companion to and really a prerequisite for another series that we do called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Saints. That title's obviously stolen from the title of the best-selling book in the, in the 80s by Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I did this series last year, Seven Habits of Highly Effective Saints. But as I say in that top paragraph, it occurred to me that the Seven Habits series that we do, good though it was, I think, and helpful though it was, uh, it focuses on the things that we implement in our lives in order to make us more efficient in the Lord's work. But there's an unspoken assumption in that. And that is that I desire to do the Lord's work. I mean, the truth is, if I give you tools to be more efficient in what you do, but you don't desire to do what God has called us to, then I've just given you tools to make you more efficient in your selfishness. Right? So it occurred to me that we should probably have a class before that one that gets us all on the same page that says, I have to align my priorities with the priorities that God gives in Scripture. I have to want, I have to desire to do what God has called me to. Then I need the skills in order to do that most efficiently. And so in order to have it in proper order, this class is designed to be, as I say at the top, a companion to and even prerequisite for that class. If you look at the next paragraph, the pursuit of happiness is designed to prod us toward our Christian calling. In so doing, we're going to look at various obstacles that we face in pursuing our calling. Most important, we're going to look at biblical teaching that sheds light on both our purpose and our struggle in achieving it. This series is divided into two sections. And so on each of the pages in your ten pages of notes there, up at the top it says section one, and then later it'll say section two. Section one is the source of happiness. So we're going to discuss from where does happiness come. We're going to do that for the next few weeks. And then we'll go to part two, which is the practice of happiness. 
once I've identified the source and I'm plugged into the source, now I put into practice some things that will allow me to, allow me to pursue the happiness I was designed for. And so we'll look at questions like those six bullet points in the middle of that page. From where does happiness come? Am I to actively engage in the pursuit of happiness, or is it something that just happens? Does pursuit of happiness mean I'm working in order to gain God's favor? Some of you will know what that means, but, you know, does that mean God's going to like me more if I, if I pursue things the way he says? We'll talk about that. Or the question of what does it matter what I do since all my sins have been covered by Jesus? I'm going to heaven, so Jesus is my ticket to heaven. Does he also have to be my passport through life? You, you might know the answer to that. As long as I'm not sinning, does it, then does it matter how I'm spending my time? What are the good things that can distract us from the best things? And then we'll go to that, the second, that second section. Now, here's some recommended resources, and all of these I actually recommend uh, highly. The one I'll throw in a caveat on is the very first one there. Some of you may know that name, Tony Campalo. Uh, he is, uh, uh, in some respects of what he believes, he's, a, he's like a heretic. So, so if you know that and you see his name there, don't get scared. I'm not a heretic. But he just wrote a really good book about this subject called Who Switched the, uh, the Price Tags. Uh, so I recommend that to you. I've been reading Francis Chan's book, uh, Crazy Love. As a matter of fact, uh, some of uh, this morning's uh, uh, illustrations and so on uh, came from some of what he has in that, that book. We'll have a section on how we make decisions, and Gary Friesen's book is, in my opinion, the best one on that subject. And um, David Platt, all of them, I, as I say, I recommend. David Platt has a series of books in the last couple of years uh, called Radical, and it's Reclaiming Your Faith from the American Dream, and then he's got the Radical Question, How Valuable is Jesus to You? And then Radical Community, that is, people who have reoriented their values in community, this thing called called the church. R.C. Sproul has a couple of older but uh, helpful books, and then Ted Tripp on a quest for more. All right, take a look at page two. This week, you pursued what would make you happy. Now think about what you did this week, if you can remember. You go, really, I pursued what would make me happy this week? <laughs> I didn't realize that. Well, this week you pursued, you did pursue what would make you happy. Now, notice this. It doesn't mean you actually did what makes you happy. But I said you pursued what would make you happy. That is, you either actually did it, you either actually engaged in the thing or things that you believe bring you, bring you happiness, or... You used your mental energies thinking about them. So one of the two is the case with, with each of us. We, we did, we pursued what would make us happy, either by actually engaging in it or by obsessing about it, by thinking about it, or them, maybe multiple things. If you did not actually do the thing or things that make you happy, then you found yourself this week less than satisfied with what you did do. <laughs> now, that's pretty probably everybody in here. You look back at your week and you go, was I satisfied with you know, everything that I did? No. Why not? Because I'd have rather been doing X, Y, and Z. 
And so there are a thing or things that all of you have, written or unwritten, that you believe are valuable enough for you to pursue in order for you to find happiness. You either engaged in them or you thought about them regularly this week. But all of us pursued what it is that would make us, make us happy. Now, at the outset of this series, I want you to understand that God, God is inviting you to do what you want to do. Wow, how cool is that? God's saying, do what you want. I want you to do what you want. You say, there's got to be a catch. Well, if you consider aligning what you want to do with what God knows is best for you to be a catch, then yeah, there's a catch. God wants you to pursue what you want. But he wants you to pursue what's best as well. And so God is not going to stop you from pursuing what you want. He wants you to do whatever you want. But he's at work, now get this, God is at work in changing what it is we want. So when I made that opening statement, you know, God wants you to do whatever you want to do, if immediately you start saying, oh man, golf forever, how beautiful is that? Well, you've just identified what's most important to you. Whatever popped into your head, God wants you to do it. Whatever popped into your head, that's the thing or things that are most important to you. Those things may or may not line up with what God knows is best for us. But you are going to pursue, you did this past week, and God is encouraging you to pursue what you want, but he is working to make what you want what is best. So how do I know? This past week, Brown, you said I've been pursuing happiness this past week. Either I actually engaged in it or I was thinking about it. How do I know what's really important to me? What I think is really the thing or things that will make me happy? There are lots of ways, measures for you to identify this. One would be um, ask Google to give you your profile. You know, they're keeping a profile on you. And uh, they've gotten in trouble for it but they keep a profile of searches. This is how, when I do a Google search, it knows to pop up stuff in my like, local area. You know, it knows my IP address. Somewhere along the line, I gave somebody my, my name and, and, and addre my address. And so they have some idea where I am so they can pop up local deals on, my, on the side of my uh, webpage. So they're keeping track of you. They're keeping track of you so they can sell it effectively to people who want to target you. Now, what if you could get a print out of that? You can't. You'd have to, you can't get your own profile. <laughs> Other people could buy your profile. But what if you could get your own? So what am I interested in by virtue of what it is I go searching for? That'd be fairly revealing, wouldn't it? Well, since Google's not going to give you the printout, just think about what it is you spend your time, what exotic vacations you're looking for, what houses you're looking at, what new job you're after. Your Google profile will tell you a lot. I'll tell you another measure. If you have a Facebook account, so what, do you, what do you yap about on Facebook? 
A lot of that is going to be what's really important to you. Now, here's the difficult part. As I do that, as you do that, and I look at the stuff that consumes my mental energies and my time, I then have to ask my questions. The question, is this the stuff that Jesus cares about? And the truth of the matter is, most often, for most of us, the answer is no. I spend a lot of time and a lot of mental energy on stuff that Jesus doesn't really care about. Now, some of you may be, if you're awake and you're thinking, you may be saying, I thought Jesus cared about everything I do. I mean, is it stuff that Jesus approves of as a priority for you? Yeah, he cares how you're spending your time. He cares how I'm spending my time. As we're going to see in a couple of weeks, he's actually going to have us give an account. Ah, that hurt. Give an account for my Facebook time, for my Google time. But Jesus says we will, we will give an account of what we did with what he gave, including our time. I told you, that, I told you, I warned you, right? Right? So take a look at the top of page two, the source of happiness. Can Jesus really make me happy? Because, see, friends, at the, at the crux of it is that issue. I don't believe that I can be happy in what in God and in what God has called me to. Therefore, I chase, I pursue lesser things. And so the question we have to become convinced of is that Jesus can, in fact, fulfill me. And he can, in fact, make me happy. And the lesser things, some of which we'll identify as we go on, those lesser things are actually false advertising. Can Jesus really make me happy? And I have the verse from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 for you. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, I want to spend the balance of our time talking about what that verse means and then relating it to those questions, those four questions on page two. The very first word in Romans 12 and verse one is therefore. Therefore, in view of God's mercies. So therefore, based upon what's just been discussed in chapters one through 11, therefore, in view of the mercies of God that have just been recounted in 11 chapters, Here's what you should do. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Now, in order to get why I should offer my body as a living sacrifice and be transformed rather than conform, I have to have some understanding of what those mercies are. So let me as quickly as I can remind you of what the 11 chapters, first 11 chapters of Romans tells us. In verse 16 of Romans chapter 1, you have the theme verse. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God 
for everyone who believes. Verse 17 says, For in it, the gospel, is revealed a righteousness from God, a righteousness which is by faith from first to last, or from beginning to end, completely by faith. So the theme verses, verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 say, this book of Romans, 16 chapters, is about this thing called the good news, the gospel. And here's why it's good news. Because in it, the gospel message, there is a righteousness that is outside of myself. It's a righteousness from God that I get not by what I do, but by what He did. And it is therefore by faith from beginning to end. I believe in who He is and what He did for me. That's the good news. Then verse 18 of Romans 1 says, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. So, what you've got is chapter 1, first 17 verses, set things up. Verses 16 and 17 give you the theme. It's about the gospel and this righteousness that comes to us from outside of ourselves. And then verse 18 starts telling you why you need that. For the wrath of God is being revealed against the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their ungodliness. That's what chapter 1 verse 18 says. And they're suppressing the truth, holding down the truth. Why? Because... Verse 19 says, because what may be known of God has been made clear to them, being understood by what has been made. But instead of worshiping and serving the Creator, verse 24 of Romans chapter 1, they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the, the Creator. So he catalogs sin. Here's why you need this good news on a righteousness from outside of yourself, because you don't have any righteousness. <laughs> and the wrath of God is being made now. And he catalogs that all the way through chapter 2, first part of chapter 3. In both of those, all of those chapters, it says that Jews and Gentiles, that would be everybody alike, fit into this category. And so beginning in verse 9 of Romans 3, what do we say? What do we conclude, he says? And he says, are we any better, we Jews, any better than what I've just talked about with the Gentiles? No. And then he says, there's no one good, no, not one. There's no one who seeks God, no one who understands. Their lips are lying. Their feet shed, shed blood. They, all kinds of stuff. A whole catalog. So it's an ugly picture for the first three chapters, showing you why you need the good news of a righteousness that comes from outside of yourself. And then you come to chapter 3 and verse 21 of Romans. But now, a righteousness has been made known. A righteousness which comes from God and to which the law and the prophets testify. That's what it says. In contrast to how bad it is for all of us, now, this righteousness that is the good news, chapter 1 and verse 17, a righteousness from God is revealed. Now, this righteousness has been made known, something that the law and the prophets predicted. And who does this righteousness come through? Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ's death on our behalf and his perfect life on our behalf. And Romans chapter 4 tells us 
that when we come to God through Jesus Christ, believing what he has done for us, there is, and this is important, a great exchange that takes place. My sin is placed on Christ. He takes my sin. And I get his righteousness. Thanks be to God. And so now I have right standing before God, the one who was angry and wrathful against me because of my sin and from whom I was separated. I now have a relationship because Jesus has provided that relationship by his blood on the cross, covering my sin and his absolutely perfect life. My sin is given to Christ and Christ's payment for sin is applied to me and his perfect life of righteousness is given to me. That's the good news. You come to chapter 6, 7, and 8. And it's all about how this good news continues in your life. After you initially come to God and this great exchange takes place, your sin on Christ, His righteousness given to you, He continues His work in you, gives you His Spirit. His Spirit leads you, Romans chapter 8, into righteousness, into, into moral living, godly living. And then in chapters 9 and 10 and 11, Paul, who wrote that letter, deals with God's chosen people, Israel. And he says, God has not forgotten his chosen people. As a matter of fact, he is going to turn his attention to the Jewish people in a very focused way, yet in the future. And at the end of chapter 11, and all Israel will be saved, he says. And then you come to the end of chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. It says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? How, how far are his ways past tracing out? And goes on to praise the Lord for his wisdom and his knowledge. And then it ends by saying, now from him and to him and through him are all things. Amen. Then you come to Romans 12 and verse 1. Therefore, in view of God's mercies, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Top of page 2. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. Now, when it says spiritual act of worship, in the King James it says, this is your... Anybody have a King James? says this is your reasonable service. Anybody remember that? And here's why. The Greek word that's translated reasonable service or spiritual act of worship in the NIV, the Greek word is logizomai. And we get a, an English word, logic, from it, or reason. And actually the King James translation of that is, is, is helpful. In view of God's mercies, it is only reasonable. It only makes sense now that we respond to this mercy by giving ourselves completely and wholly, fully to Him in whatever He calls us to do. This is your reasonable service. God is not asking you to do anything unreasonable. God has done all of this and provided all of this for you in view of His mercies then. It's an act of worship for you saying that I believe in this God and I am grateful to this God. And I give myself all that I am 
as a living sacrifice to him. Then verse 2 says, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. Well, yeah. Do not be conformed to the, any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Now notice this, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So he's done all of this. My reasonable response, my worshipful response is to give myself to him. And in giving myself to him, I can no longer give myself to the world. I can no longer pursue the values of the world that I used to pursue. I will now pursue what he says is important, not what the world says is important. Do not be conformed any longer. What does that assume? You've been being conformed. (laughs) All of us were. So the assumption is stop doing that now. You were doing it now that you've come to Christ. You cease doing that and you cease following the values of the world and you begin to follow what's valuable to Jesus. Do not be conformed or as one translation puts it, do not fit into the world's mold. Do not be put into the world's cast so that you look just like the world. Now when I say look just like the world, look like the world in what's important to you and what you chase and what you go after. Notice the statements I have on page two. If it makes you happy, well, it can't be that bad, right? But if it really makes you happy, then why are you so sad? And you've got got so many people who are chasing what they think will make them happy, but in fact, they're not. But if I can just have one more or some more or in a different context... It'll make me happy. Ultimately, it's going to satisfy, and you are chasing your tail. In fact, the book of Ecclesiastes is all about that, chasing the wind and trying to grasp something that's elusive. If it makes you happy, why are you so sad? How many people are chasing what they think will make them happy, but in fact, they never get there, right? Or look at the next statement, though. If it makes you happy, (laughs) actually, you should be sad. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is, really? That makes you happy? I mean, even if it does make you happy, that's enough? Stuff that's going to rust and be destroyed and be gone in a, a few weeks, in a few years? That's enough to satisfy you? If that's the case, you ought to be sad. Because you settle for too little. Hear this, friends. Jesus is not calling you to settle for less. He's calling us to stop settling for less. The world calls us to settle for too little. Stuff. Things that will be destroyed. Things that can be stolen. Things that will rust. Jesus said, do not lay up your treasures on things where moth corrodes, rust corrodes, things that men can steal. 
but lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Matthew 6, 21 to 23, in case you're keeping score. Now look back up at the verse at the top of the page. Do not conform, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Friends, please catch that last phrase. God's will is good and pleasing and perfect. And I've heard this taught when I was young. Perhaps you've heard this taught as well. That Romans 12, 2 is talking about three different wills of God. He has his you know, good will for you. He has his perfect will for you. And so on. And so, you know, you, if, you, if, you, if you marry the wrong person, if you marry the person that God didn't have designed for you, well, you can be in his, you know, his good will, but you're not going to be in his perfect will. So God's got these different levels of his will. And that's not what that verse is saying. God has one will. And God's one will is all three of those things. It is good, and it's pleasing, and it's perfect. And when you offer yourself as a fair exchange, as reasonable service, in light of God's mercies to you, when you offer yourself as a living sacrifice to Him, saying, Lord, I trust you enough to know what's best for me, and I'm no longer going to be fooled by the fool's gold that the world presents to me. When you do that, you will test and approve. That is, you will show that this will of God is those three things. It is good, it is pleasing, and it is perfect. Can Jesus make you happy? He says, try me. My will is good and pleasing and perfect, and it will be proven to you when you offer yourself completely and fully to me. That's what that verse is telling you. And that is precisely what every Christian should be doing in light of his mercies. Now look at the third statement there. Dear Jesus, but dear Jesus, you know, we're having a great time. <laughs> Wish you were here. And what, what do I mean by that? You see, the verse up at the top is calling for transformation, not addition. Here's what I mean. What many Christians think is, I come to Jesus, and what that does is it adds Jesus on to what I'm already up to. So I've got all the stuff I like to do and all the stuff I like to spend my time on. So rather than transformation of my values, which translates into a reorientation of my life, rather than that, I do the stuff that I've already, already liked to do. This is what makes me happy. And I've got Jesus on top of that. How great is that? Jesus, I am having a great time. Wish you were here. Can't wait until you show up. Because I know heaven is just going to be an eternity of more of this. I've actually heard people say, as they look at a landscape or something like that, 
If this isn't heaven, I don't know what is. My friends, get this. I thank God. My family's over in Lake Michigan. I was able to be with them earlier this week. Just some beautiful spots over there. Thank God for that. It shows the majesty of our God, the creative ability of our God. You need to understand something. You ain't seen nothing. This world, this physical world, holds nothing compared to what it will be like when he transforms this world into what it was originally designed to be. Do you you understand this is not what it was designed to be? And you have transformed values. Not just adding Jesus now onto what you already like, but now aligning your values with his values. Almost done. I've got three minutes. But how many of us have approached the Christian life precisely that way? Having a great time. Wish you were here. Adding Jesus on top of what I was already doing. And then lastly, we have to ask the question, so what's your pleasure? What pleases you? What do you want to do? Is it what Jesus tells you is best for you? Is it his good and pleasing and perfect will or just what you like to do? I had a friend when I was growing up, good friend, who uh, when I started to become a Baptist, most of you guys know that I grew up Pentecostal, right? And the biggest issue in the church I grew up in that I came to disbelieve and thus left was that the church taught that you could be a Christian, you could have a relationship with God, and then at some time in the future, two weeks, two months, two years, 20 years down the road, you could lose that relationship. Or to put it another way, they didn't believe in eternal security. They believed you could lose your salvation. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches that when you have a relationship with God through Christ, that lasts forever. And once I came to understand that, I had to leave that church. Well, I had a good friend who's still a good friend in that church, and he's still in that church. And as we were discussing these matters, he said to me, so you think that after you come to Jesus, you can then do whatever you want? He said, if I believed I could do whatever I want, and this was his phrase, I'd just hang up my Bible. And I said to him, I won't use his name, some of you might know him, but I said, you know, you're just revealing something about where your heart is. You see, I don't, I don't, we are not called to live for Jesus because we're, afraid, because we're afraid if we don't, we won't be able to get into heaven. We're called to live for Jesus because he's given us heaven. And the one who's given himself to give me heaven, how will he not, Romans chapter 8, give us all things? And so the question is, do I trust him? Do I trust him that if I follow him, that he can be the most pleasing person in the universe? And that he can lead me into paths that are more pleasant and joyful than anything the world could ever manufacture or anything that I've ever experienced? Do I believe that? I'm telling you that in in my mind, I believe that. 
I would also be lying to you to tell you that in my heart I always believe that. That's why I sin. But it is why I sin. When I sin, I disbelieve that he is good. When I follow the values of the world, it's because I don't believe he's good. And so, friends, what's your pleasure? What pleases you? And what we have to be involved in, each of us, myself included, is a daily process, a weekly process, a monthly process, until Jesus calls us home or returns, of aligning our values with his values. Why? Because his are pleasing, and his are good, and his are perfect. Now, at the outset of the series, you need to ask yourself, do I believe that? Is it just Jesus on top of what I already like, or is it Jesus transforming me into what I should like? And in the weeks ahead, we're going to see how that process goes. And we're going to get, like, real personal. I'm going to have you actually list the junk you do. And, it'll, and we won't pass it around. <laughs> you know, for you to think about the stuff you do and then ask yourself, is this the stuff that Jesus values? Okay? Let's ask the Lord to help us in the weeks ahead. Keep that with you. We'll have more copies in case you forget yours. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, we thank you for this time to look into this uh, all-important issue of how we pursue our lives. Lord God, you've left us here, which means that there's apparently more that you care about than just whether or not we're going to heaven. I know I'm going to heaven. Not because I'm good, but because Jesus Christ has been good to me. And in his goodness, he died to pay for my sin. And he has given me his life of righteousness. I know I'm going to heaven. But Lord, I'm still here on earth, and you've left me here, and you have given me a purpose. You've given me things to do, and you've given me abilities, and you've given me time, and you have given me treasure, and they're yours. And I am now living out the test as to whether or not I truly believe Jesus can make me happy. Oh, Lord God, there are so many things that pop and dazzle, that distract our attention. Help us to see them for what they are, the lesser lights of the world. And help us to remove our attention from them and focus ourselves upon the light of the world in Jesus. Through this series, I pray that you will help me and help my dear friends to be able to see how we are so easily satisfied for too little. And to see that our greatest joy comes in following you and that you always make good on your promise. Your will is good and pleasing and perfect. Go with us this week as we seek to implement these things, as we pray about these things, as we think about these things. And bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.